I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where? I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'll be surprised at the info you get is by letting us talk. Hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asty, and I'm curious, aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast brings the unfamiliar closer. I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now they ain't go harder than me. My guest, Natalie Kazar, told me, if it's a human rights issue, then there's no both sides. Natalie's a photojournalist who believes that journalists have an obligation to be honest, not necessarily neutral. For about a year during the pandemic, Natalie shone her lens on the lives and deaths of the elderly who were behind bars in New York during COVID, and she shared the stories of those locked up and their families. In fact, across the country at this moment, there are 200,000 elderly people currently in prisons. Natalie told me it's so easy for society to dismiss people in prison as people who deserve what they get or who don't deserve humane treatment, but she wants to use her camera to make sure the most vulnerable in prison are seen. In this episode, we talk about this project of hers over the pandemic where she photographed elders in prison and uh, their families showing the toll that it took on the families worried about their incarcerated loved ones. You can see her photos and reporting on this project in the Rolling Stone article, Prisoners and the Pandemic. Natalie Kazar is a documentary photographer based in Brooklyn, New York. She's interested in inequality, youth culture, and the personal effects of political turmoil and violence, primarily in the U.S. and Latin America. She has an interesting background. She has a BFA in painting and illustration from the Pratt Institute. She's contributed to publications such as the New York Times Magazine, Time, Bloomberg Businessweek, National Geographic, and California Sunday Magazine and been awarded by organizations including the the Philip Jones Griffith Award, the Aaron Siskin Foundation, Magenta Flash Forward, and American Photography. She has taught new media at the International Center of Photography in New York and has instructed at various workshops across the U.S. and Latin America with organizations such as Foundry, Women Photograph, the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the IWMF, and International Photography Festival of Puebla, Mexico, She's a Pulitzer Center grantee, a long-term fellow with the International Women's Media Foundation Latin America program, the winner of the 2018 ICP Infinity Emerging Photographer Award, and the 2019 PH Museum Women Photographers Grant. She's impressive, and so with that, I'm going to say, let's get right to it. Here we go. I have to start, Natalie. I'm just really excited to have you here. We had gotten to talk a little bit before us, before this, and I feel like you're the woman I want to be when I grow up, even though we're probably about the same age. (laughs) And I don't know you, but you seem to have this sense of adventure and curiosity and passion and that you stand for what you believe in. So I'm really grateful that you're here and to sort of dive into this together. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I mean, it's been really cool checking out your previous episodes. And, you know, like I was saying before, like, 
I mean, you've really had some incredible activists and, and human rights defenders on your show. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to be among such an amazing caliber of people. So, and, and props for what you're doing because you're telling really important stories on here. So, well, uh, we're going to get into the stories you're telling because I feel like <laughs> they are uh, talk about heavyweight stories. Um, so, of course, this episode is about you. I promise, but I do want to start actually with your mom. <laughs> Interesting place to start, but you had told me that your mom's a lawyer and a rights activist for incarcerated people. So what was it like growing up with her and how did that shape your understanding of the world? I'm so happy that we're starting with my mom because oh. my mom is my hero and my biggest inspiration in so many ways um and yeah and uh specifically related to to the subject matter my mom's a, a law professor she she was a practicing lawyer for a very short period of time but she's a law professor and she's also a philosopher so she's like an ethicist as well um and she's brilliant and has so much heart and has devoted pretty much her entire life in one way or another in addition to her academic work to uh working on working pro bono on civil rights issues in the law. So she spent a lot of time working on issues like women, women in the death penalty, which, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of women are condemned to death or life in prison for killing abusive partners in self-defense or as a result of, you know, decades of trauma or, you know, cases like that. Um, and, you know, I mean, this was stuff that she always talked about when she came home and it was really like, I growing up I never I don't think I realized just how incredible mm. the water I was swimming in you know yeah. you're like oh you don't know but like you know what she was doing and how brave it was and how radical it was and and the way she always made time for that and all you know it's, it's, I don't think it would ever occur to her to not spend a lot of her own time working to make the world better to help individuals with these really specialized skills that she has so um in recent years she has worked a lot upon issues surrounded surrounding elder, elder incarceration um which is a massive and really i think pretty undercovered human rights crisis uh that we have here in the u.s um and it was actually it was that work that got me curious about this issue in general, and then and then when COVID hit, and you know, I realized how vulnerable elderly incarcerated people were. Mm. You know, it was you know I already had this awareness about these issues, you know, really from her work, particularly because I feel like even in like other activist circles, other radical circles, you know, we think so much about young people in prison and a school to prison pipeline and that like youth getting cut short mm -hmm. and you know at least in my case you know I was I was very conscious of that part of the story but like the other end of the narrative arc where you've got really really elderly people who couldn't be a threat to society if they wanted to mm -hmm. um you know who are incarcerated and then in a global pandemic you, you know once I was aware of that 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 was what inspired the story so my mom my mom's my, my my mom's really my biggest inspiration and advisor in so many ways. And this particular project was really directly related to seeing her work and getting interested in it. Mm. Oh, I, I love that you have that relationship with your mom, that it seems like you 
grow from each other. I'm sure that she grows from you as well. And we're going to, of course, get into that story more deeply so you can share that. But I guess before we really jump into this story on Elder Pearl that you did, did you always know you wanted to become a journalist or a photographer? Was that always sort of center for you or something that developed a little bit later? Like, how did you find your home in that? Oh, yeah, I had no idea. I was just so many of my my friends and colleagues now, like we're like yearbook photographers. They went to J school, like right. I had no idea what I was doing for a really uh-huh. long time. Um, I dropped out of high school. I ended up I ended up I ended up coming to New York on a, on a scholarship to go to art school, which was like the only thing I was good at. And it was a huge outlet for my feelings. <laughs> I had a lot of pent up. um and so I I can't I went I studied uh painting and illustration uh here in New York at Pratt um and and it wasn't until I you know I I travel I was kind of traveling on and off like I I was sort of lost and like meandering um and it wasn't until after I graduated art school that I was sort of considering like okay do I want like do I want to be a professional artist am I going to be a painter am I going to am I going to be an illustrator and at that point I was really voraciously reading the news it was Mm -hmm. sort of the first time in my life that I I found that what inspired my paintings not literally not in terms of like I was painting the news but the issues I was reading about um and you know activism human rights struggles Mm -hmm. what's going on out there in the world that was what inspired me. That was what made me want to paint. And so I always had the newspaper clippings all of my, over my studio walls. And like a lot of my sort of like senior thesis stuff was like based on books I was reading and stuff like that. So I was starting to interact with photojournalism a whole lot as a student. And I was starting to wish that like, wow, like people, there's somebody whose job it is to like go to the <laughs> places and meet these people and take these photographs. Yeah. And, but I was like, I mean, I, like, I'm a mess. I'm this artist who <laughs> has a terrible academic record. Like, there's no way that people like me get to do this job. Um, and then, actually, I graduated art school. I worked at like a gallery by day and was waiting tables by night. And the 2009 uh, economic crash happened, and the gallery business was doing really poorly, uh, and the restaurant yeah. shut down. Like one day I went to work and there was a sign on the door saying like go home no job we're closed wow and I realized that I was going to be able to collect unemployment Mm. and that meant that I had a little bit of time and a little bit of financial space to apply Mm. for an unpaid internship Mm. and so I applied for an unpaid internship with uh, two wonderful photographers named Julia Platner and Shaul Schwartz, who, because they're fantastic people, immediately started paying me because I wouldn't go home. So, like, <laughs> not in a situation. And, like, on the contrary, they taught me everything I know and mentored me and told me that, yes, indeed, like, actually, you don't need to have gone to an Ivy League school or studied journalism mm-hmm. to do this work. You basically need to show up, make good pictures, and tell the truth about what you saw. Mm. Um, and so that was how I got into it. And it was interesting because the minute I picked up a camera, the minute I, I started sort of assisting and interning and moving into the world of documentary photography, I was like, yep, this is, this is it. This is me. This, nothing had ever quite felt right before. And that felt really right. 
Oh, I love that moment when you have that sense of like, this is it, like that sense of calling, like I belong here. And also you were saying that you were wondering, like, could people like you actually do this? And I feel like people like you were meant to do this and all that meandering in life experience led you to this moment. And like you said, telling the truth through your lens. Um, all right, so let's get to it. <laughs> let's talk about the Rolling Stone article that came out in May. So first of all, what was this project? So, yeah. Um... When the pandemic hit New York after the sort of initial shock sort of wore off, did it ever wear off anyways? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I came back here, I was in Venezuela when the pandemic hit, I came home, oh, wow. I started working sort of immediately as the pandemic was peaking in New York in March and April. And, you know, it was just sort of in survival mode and as a journalist in like breaking news mode that's crazy thing is happening and how do we cover it and people don't believe that it's real like mm. I, I think you know I've gone on as a photojournalist to constantly be questioning what is truth and what is reality and you know what is honesty and what, yeah. what is this thing that I do you know and I have <laughs> a very complicated relationship with it and sometimes it's a very difficult relationship with it but like during the pandemic I was like okay this is actually, this situation is crystal clear for me. We need to show people how devastating this thing is in order to mitigate harm because the more people believe in it, the more resources we have, the better measures we have in place, the fewer people die and the more that we can show the unequal impact of this thing yeah. on our people, hopefully the, the more help will be, you know, I mean, I just felt like, okay, this one's simple. We just need to cover the hell out of this thing and so I was in that mode and but very quickly started you know reading about seeing the obvious next step which is that prisons were going to become the worst hot spots for COVID mm. I mean you know in many points during the history of this hellish thing you know American prisons have been like the most concentrated places where the virus is obviously now because of the vaccine inequality that's changing in other horrible ways. But, you know, there was this point in time when the people at the highest risk had the fewest recourses, they had no way to protect themselves. And that was incarcerated people and the most high risk incarcerated people were the elderly. Yeah. And, and, and there was a lot of conversations going on you know, those governors were granting clemency to like low level offenders if it wasn't a fel felony, you know, bail reform, da da da. All of these great things, fantastic, that absolutely don't address long haulers, which is who the elderly right. are, right? So, like, when you're talking about elderly incarcerated people, you're mostly talking about people that committed serious crimes decades ago. And these people, you know, these measures are falling in the typical conversational trap that's really been influenced by politics around incarceration which I'm sure you're very aware of which is if you're a long hauler then you may have committed a quote-unquote violent crime you may right. have committed a not quote-unquote very violent crime mm -hmm. but we're talking about people that committed these crimes two three four decades ago right when they were 1920 something you know around there yeah totally and you know and, and, and yeah, that's that's complicated, right? This is right. people that have probably hurt somebody or that uh -huh. may have hurt somebody or that may have behaved in a way that could have been very hurtful. But looking at 
the incarceration statistics that we have, recidivism for people over like 55 years old is under three or 5%, depending on whose studies you look at. Yeah. Because grandpa isn't going to ride a bank anymore. Grandpa is using a walker, right? And grandma, who is a linchpin of her community, mm-hmm. statistically was almost certainly helping out her good for nothing boyfriend, you know, I mean, and, and I don't want to generalize and I, and I think it's really important to not fall into the trap of saying that everybody's innocent and everybody's perfect, you know, that's exactly. the point. people don't have to be innocent right. to deserve humane treatment. And oh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> so looking at this issue, I'm just like, you know, the whole world is super distracted. Everybody's super freaked out about what's going on on the outside. We're talking about bail reform. We're talking about maybe reducing the population of Rikers, which PS didn't even happen. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody's talking about the 200,000 elderly Americans that are currently incarcerated, who are very more likely than general population to suffer from comorbidities Mm -hmm. you know I mean they're at the top of the top of the top of the high risk margin and and they're not even being given masks because the the CEOs are saying that the masks are gang affiliated and they can't use hand sanitizer even though they are making it because it has alcohol in it like that's Mm -hmm. what we're dealing with and so it was that outrage and forgive me for a little hype over here about no get hype started that had me starting to pitch that story and try to figure out uh how to go about photographing it because it's a it was difficult access and uh visual narrative wise so what was because I know you you photographed both families of loved ones who were incarcerated during the pandemic what was that experience like to be amongst either the people who are incarcerated or the families like how just on a more global for you general perspective like what was that feeling for you yeah I mean so I wanted to you know and I think about this all the time in my work photojournalism is historically a pretty abusive exploitative Mm -hmm. medium in a lot of ways that's not the only thing it is but that is one thing that's inextricable from its legacy and and, and in a lot of ways inextricable from most of the ways that it has historically been practiced Mm -hmm. and so I'm constantly thinking about how to rethink visual representation and rethink the, yeah. the interactive practice of photographing people in a uh-huh. way that, you know, turns undignified, disempowered tropes on their head. So I really, I wanted this to be a project about portraiture. You know, I wanted it to be lit. I wanted it to be powerful feeling. I wanted to see the incarcerated people and their families really as they want to be seen, you know, which I just think is a different, this sort of a different way of imagining visually a lot of the ways that we represent incarcerated people. And yes. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Our Prison's Obsolete. Yes. <laughs> she has this like incredible passage in there where she's talking about media representation of, of, of prisons, of American prisons particularly, and this wild sort of pop culture trick that we have where everybody thinks they know what the American prison is like because we're Mm -hmm. absolutely saturated in imagery and stories about these like super violent, hyper-masculine, you know, I mean, there's just so many tropes, you know, these orange jumpsuits. I've never seen an orange jumpsuit ever working in a prison, but anyway, I'm I'm sure they exist. They must be somewhere, but like, you know, 
New York, for example, it's greens. But anyways, you know, Davis has this incredible way of talking about how we can be simultaneously media oversaturated in an idea of prison that is false and that perpetuates the sort of propaganda goals of prison in our society while simultaneously having the people that are affected by this rendered invisible. Yes. <laughs> so in thinking about this piece, I wanted to make collaborative, slow portraiture with either the, if, if, if I was able to enter the prisons, which when I started was a total question mark because most places were completely locked down and I didn't know yeah. if I was gonna be able to get inside in any capacity, but I certainly wanted to work with families because these people are taking the brunt of all of the stress. I mean, you know, everybody can relate to being heartbroken to be away from their families during the mm -hmm. pandemic, especially their older relatives that are at high risk, right? Like, you know, I was, beside myself because I couldn't go into my mom's apartment like the whole year and yeah was super worried about her but my mom's safe in an apartment right mm. you know and so thinking about these families already were dealing with the isolation they're already dealing with the separation and all of the alienation they're dealing with all of the fears about COVID only their fears you know we're not talking about people that can in any ways isolate themselves so everything is mm -hmm. so amplified and so I wanted to create space where we could talk about that space where people could you know, have a platform where they could address all of the injustice that they've been facing. I had to figure out a process that was going to be safe. A lot of this work was done outside until, until sort of later in the, in the pandemic when we figured out like what masking and isolation could make it more safe to go indoors occasionally. But yeah, I mean, honestly, pretty much without exception, every single person I met while working on this project just, I mean, for, they were so inspiring. You know, they, mm. they were, the, the lessons that they were teaching me, the strength they were showing that they shouldn't have had to show, but you know, was what they were working with. You know, what, I would just, I really felt like I was so privileged to be in the presence of these people and learn from them and spend time with them and talk with them about how they wanted to be represent, represented and how they felt and make pictures that I was, you know, hoping that they would feel good about um, and hoping that, you know, would be impactful and, and get their story out there. So it was, um, it was really amazing. And it, and it really kind of put my own struggles with the pandemic in perspective, right? Every mm. time I, went and you know spent time with the people that I photographed for this piece like you know I was just like wow okay this is me not complaining anymore about you know whatever but you know but also we had a good time you know I mean like like you know I, I got I got to go to Sabrina Scott who is one of the women in this piece held a birthday party for her husband Todd um, you know, we got to hang out on speakerphone with Sabrina's friends and she made a cake and like we had an amazing conversation and we were, you know, and it was a, I, it was a real sort of back and forth, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, that was, it, I was just super privileged to be there and, you know, Sabrina's been so amazing. Thank you, Sabrina, so much for everything you've shared if you're listening, mm. you know, I mean, and, and so many of these important relationships were like that. So it was just, it was, it was hard. You know, mm. it's, it's awful, it's excruciating spending time with people when the reason I'm there to photograph them is because their loved one died in prison when they didn't have to. 
you know it's 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 super painful to to hold space for that but nowhere near the pain of of the families you know and it's like you know it's, it's just a you know it, it doesn't compare so for me it was an honor to be able to create space where they could put what happened to them and the injustice they suffered and their losses as a result of that on record I'm glad actually that you brought up like both of these things can be true at once that it was awful and excruciating and also you had a good time because I think that's the truth of human existence and sometimes generally or you're talking about like the media with Angela Davis before these people both who are incarcerated and the family members are like one-dimensional we don't truly see them as human beings and that brings them to life because any human interaction is going to have all of those things at once regardless of what's going on even in deep places of darkness and pain there's also those lights or those moments of joy and sort of to uh, share all of that uh, I think is important yeah you you mentioned something now of like the fact that people died in prison because of COVID. So they were given a punishment for whatever they did, but their punishment was not dead. Like this was not, not part of it. So can you actually briefly or as, as much as you want actually talk about Cynthia and Leonard? Yeah, I sure can. And I think that's a really important, awful, unnecessary, tragic death to highlight. Um, and you know, Cynthia Carter Young, who's the woman you're referring to, who I photographed and interviewed for this piece. I mean, so her brother Leonard was incarcerated for something around the last couple of decades. I forget exactly how long his sentence was, but uh, at the end of 19 of, of 2019, he was granted parole, um, which, you know, as we know, is a process, right? It's not uh, like in the movies where they, they say you've got parole and they come and get you and let you go. Like, this is, they started to put the paperwork through in early 2020. They moved him to the Queensboro Correctional Facility as a sort of like bridge while he was being processed to be fully released, which was supposed to be like, you know, around March of 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, but he had, he was done. That was it. They were, they were finishing up paperwork and he was coming home. He had called his family. They were so excited to celebrate the next Christmas with him, his next birthday, birthday with him. You know, Cynthia was excited to go back to church with him. She's finally getting mm. her little brother back who she used to call her big older brother because mm. it was her little brother, but he acted like a big brother. Um, and, you know, to talk a little bit about who Leonard was, she described him as a prankster, as an excellent cook, that she couldn't wait to, to eat his cooking again. Mm. He was a super sharp dresser, mm. um, you know, and that he used to, <laughs> he used to leave whoopee cushions under his seat <laughs> growing up. Mm. And so Leonard was at Queensborough Correctional Facility where he's sleeping in dorms and the pandemic started to hit and his release starts getting delayed because people aren't there to do the paperwork. And meanwhile, he's sleeping in dorms with, I don't know, 50, 100 other men. Mm. Cynthia's waiting and waiting to hear. And finally, um, I think a couple, like it was either a couple of weeks before or after his scheduled release, she got a call that he was in the, in the hospital and that he, that don't worry too much, he walked out, like he, he didn't, he didn't let them carry him out. He had COVID, but he was still walking. 
And then she, you know, and then of course, as the case with so many families that I spoke to, you know, they're not being given good information about where their family member is. There's no chance of seeing them. There's no chance, I mean, of communicating. I mean, this was awful for anybody whose family was suffering from COVID. Mm. But even beyond, like, you don't know where they are. You can't get reliable information about yeah. them. You're given the runaround, all of this stuff, right? So she finally, she was told he was at one hospital. It wasn't the case. She finally finds out where he is. She's checking on him. She's like trying to find out. Sadly, he declined and declined um, until one day she she got the phone call that, that he had passed away. Um, and, you know, she said, you know, in words that will just echo in my head forever, you know, she, she said, you know, he walked in on his own two feet and he came out in a body bag. The only way he got free was in a body bag. And, you know, I mean, the, you know, if you, you can, you can actually like hear some of the recordings uh, when, and then read more of her words, which are just infinitely more powerful than mine in, in the story. But, you know, she's been really, really powerful about getting the word out there about this injustice. You know, none of this had to happen. He was supposed to be free. And, and honestly, if the prisons can't keep these people safe, mm -hmm. then paroled or not, I think, you know, there's a duty to make them all safe, right? Primarily yeah. if they're wards of the state. But this case, I mean, the the bitter, bitter, tragic irony of him being cleared for parole and not coming out alive and all of this, you know, I mean, and just all of the sort of obvious high risk steps that went into that. You've got people living in a dorm, they're not getting masks, mm -hmm. they do get masks, they're like dirty and not really the kind that protect you. You know, I mean, all of this, this could have been avoided. It was all, you know, Cynthia saw it coming. Mm. And, and like you said, the, the state or whoever has an obligation just for human beings, regardless, like you said, parole or not. And in the piece, it says something like, oh, he, what he wanted most was to hug his grandchild after, you know, 25 years of being incarcerated, he wanted to come out and hug his grandchild, which is a very human thing. And I also want to point out that this story is horrifying. And also, sadly, it's not the only one. I, ha I had friends across the country in, in prisons who so many would tell me stories like of someone they knew in the prison who like, five days before their release died from COVID or two days before, like, this is not the only story just like, and like you said, regardless of release or not, um, it's just horrifying that this is happening. And everyone who was close to it, like Cynthia having a brother is in cars, saw this coming. So this was not coming out of left field or people didn't know that this was going to be a nightmare. It was a nightmare for all of us out here. So can you imagine again, when it's in that heightened quarters where you can't social distance, you can't do ugh, any of the things that you need to, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that that's, you know, that's another thing that's really important about the story, right, is exactly what you're saying. This is symbolic. This, this isn't an outlier case, you know, yeah. this is, this is an emblematic case. This is what, we don't know how many families went through this. We know which ones are documented. We have very poor numbers. We know that, you know, prison statistics are not reliable. So, you know, I feel like we, we may not know the, the scale of this tragedy in terms of COVID deaths in prisons or irreversible COVID long-term health yeah. in prisons, we may never know, you mm -hmm. know, um, but certainly 
the story of Leonard Carter was replicated all over the country and mass, particularly among among elderly people, and it was an avoidable tragedy. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, I have a, a few. I'm just looking at the time. I have a few other questions, sort of unconnected to, or not unconnected, but sort of going off of this project. But I don't want to just end it without asking you if there's anything else. And I know we sort of just touch the surface of this, but anything else of this particular project experience that you learned that you wanted to share that you think is important that I didn't ask or we didn't get to talk about? Oh, man. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there's so, you know, there's so much and there, there's more that I, that I hope to do with this body of work. I mean, I did want to um, just want to say a massive thank you, uh, first of all, to the Magnum Foundation and the Pulitzer Center, who are two wonderful uh, granting organizations supporting documentary work that funded this project and made it possible. Um, Rolling Stone magazine, particularly my, my editor, Sasha Leka, who is amazing and really believed in this story and the year <laughs> that it took me to work on it was really supportive. Um, it's not easy to get stories about elderly incarceration in the pandemic out there. And it's, you know, so that kind of support is really, really crucial um, in today's media landscape to make all of this possible. And then I wanna send just the most heartfelt thank you to all of the people that collaborated with me on making this possible. Um, Cynthia Carter-Young, Nawana Snipe-Tucker, uh, Teresa Grady, Michelle Lind, Robert Lind, Susan Lee, Kevin Hayes, Jose Zaldana, Ruslan Smith, um, and you know, I mean, so many other people that made this possible, but really all of all of the people that you see in the photos. Oh, Diana Snipe-Tucker, also um, the little girl that we were talking about. It's a huge, huge thanks to everybody who, who worked with me on this and um, also to my mom, who was really helpful and like my guiding light and all of that. Um, mm. So, you know, I just, I just wanted to say like really like a huge thanks to everybody who made this possible and, and, and mm. helped out with it. And I, you know, this is ongoing. And I think, I think the, the work you know, the, the, the bigger picture work for, for photography and for the idea of, you know, I, I, I think that it's sort of dangerous to think about photography in terms of like giving voice to the voiceless. I hate that. I hate that. Yes. I don't do that. I don't, <laughs> right. That's not what I'm doing. Um, you know, or, you know, visibilizing things, but, you know, there also is this imperative because the structure of prison is intended to make these people invisible. And if they're invisible, and if we think that people who are in prison just deserve to be there and that's the only narrative, then we don't have to worry about them, even though they're, you know, as, as you know, as so many people know, like we're, we're surrounded by prisons and we're 100% mm -hmm. in a stranglehold of the effects of like prison psychology and, and the, you know, the way that prison culture moves through society and all of the inequality that it, continues to exacerbate so you know I feel like what I hope people will see in this project and go on and, and and share is you know is the way that there's this ripple effect right that we one incarcerated person especially one incarcerated person for years and years and years you're not just locking this is another thing that Cynthia Carter said beautifully you're you're locking up the entire family right? Mm -hmm. There are massive systemic changes that happen to not just one person, but 
you know, maybe dozens of people as a result of, of these incarcerations and the cost for society is massive, you know? So that's really mm -hmm. what I want. But I hope people will take away from this. You know, I, I don't want it to just be, it's not just a COVID story. This, this isn't a horrific injustice because of COVID. This was a horrific injustice before that, that became a murder scene because of COVID, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's something that I really hope comes across. Mm, yeah, and I, I'm grateful you pointed that out. And even in the piece, and I, I feel that I forget her name, but there was a little girl who's like the father figure had been incarcerated like most of her life and just seeing her there. And, and like you said, this affects all the loved ones. It affects the children. It affects the families. It affects our communities. And this is also part of a much larger and deeper injustice and oppression that's been going on for a really, really long time. Um, I, I do have, I have a little lightning round for you at the end of just hopefully some like more playful questions, but I wanted to ask you, I guess, one more question sort of about storytelling. And when we spoke on the phone last, you had talked about uh, neutrality as a, as a journalist and, and sort of reckoning with that. And you said that the old white man neutrality has to go. So how is that neutrality holding you and other journalists back in the, in the work that you need to do. And also I feel like collectively holding us back because we all, we all like journalism is an integral part of our society. Yeah, thank you <laughs> for referencing my most flowery language about this. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's true. And, uh, and, I, and I, this is something that I believe pretty strongly. I, I was taught as a young journalist, this concept of neutrality where you uh, you sort of split the difference between the between like the most different opinions in the room. So you know, the Democrats are you know pro-abortion and the Republicans are anti-abortion. And so as journalists, we need to reflect both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, cool. Like you, you know, okay, that's you know that maybe that's like a, a simpler example. Although you know, cool, just being against a woman's right to choose is totally not okay with me, but that's a different conversation. Right. <laughs> um, but like, you know, there's this idea of the, there being some kind of truth in the center, but, um, and this idea um, of not, of that we as journalists are not meant to take a position um, mm -hmm. because if we do take a position, then people won't trust us and then you can't communicate with both sides. And I think there is a lot of value in, in the origin of these ideas. But as journalism has evolved, especially in the U.S.'s particularly bizarre sort of polarized two-party system, this has evolved into a sort of cop-out for privileged journalists mm -hmm. that, in my opinion, is sort of an abnegation of dealing with the messy realities of our practice, which is, in my opinion, also the, the only ethical and honest way to do this work. We just, we're not objective. No, no person yeah. is objective. And so... To, to feign objectivity, you know, I personally am not halfway between a Democrat or a Republican. In fact, I find myself significantly off that entire scale in my political <laughs> you know? Um, I don't, you know, if, you know, one of the salient and tragic examples of our time is the Black Lives Matter movement and covering the Black Lives Matter movement, right? You know, if you look at it through this sort of neutral both siderism mm -hmm. lens, then you would say, okay, well, some people think that, you know, uh, this police officer 
murdered George Floyd and there's an epidemic of police violence and abuse against black people in this country. And some people <laughs> think that's okay. And I'm not interested in taking a position somewhere between being okay with racist murder by the uh -huh. state and not being okay with racist murder by the state. I'm not okay with racist murder by the state. And if that makes me a bad journalist, then fine. You know, mm -hmm. and I and I think that and I think it's I think it's dishonest to try to take that position. It's there's a difference between pretzeling yourself into halfway between two arbitrary poles, which I think is a little bit of the old model, mm -hmm. or you know, I don't, I don't, I personally don't, you know, I don't need to come out and like talk about, I hate this or that political candidate because what's the point, right? That is right. That no service. It could only alienate people. Cool. I'm fine with that. But like, if it's a human rights issue, yeah. then there's no both sides. Like yeah. that's, that's not a, that's not a question. Human rights abuses are human rights abuses. You know, I, I can't be too pro migrant rights. I can't be too against putting children in cages. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I can't be, I, I, and I don't think that, so I, I think that there's a new sort of wave of thinking about honesty, not neutrality. I'm gonna tell you where I'm coming from. I will report and talk about things I see that aren't flattering to the side that I may have. Mm -hmm. I'm not here as a representative of any particular, you know, political agenda. I'm, you know, I'm not working for any parties. I'm really not working for any parties. Um, but like, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so, but I think that like, to me, that's much more honest. And yeah. I think that's much more responsible to be real about it when we have a position to hold back on senseless opining that I don't think that, that I think really can alienate viewers and readers and serve no purpose. But also to not pretend that there's two, there's not two sides of racism. There's not two sides of homophobia or transphobia. There's there's not two sides of human rights abuse. And so I think that, and I think that historically, by saying sort of, oh, I'm not participating, I'm a neutral journalist, that was an easy cop out mm -hmm. for the majority privileged people that are in journalism. And the more journalists that we have with skin in the game. You know, which again, this is why, you know, my sort of flippant remark about old white men, well, this, this has been a white guy yeah. uh, business for years. And now we're starting to see it diversify and we're starting to see more women. We're starting to see more people of color. We're starting to see people from the, you know, different regions that are constantly sort of having people parachute into and come back. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's another really important part of what's forcing this change because if you have no skin in the game, it's really easy to pretend to be neutral because you don't care or you care, but you're not, your mom's not involved, uh -huh. your brother's not involved, yourself isn't involved, right? But the more we are reporting, we know we're having perspectives of people that are affected by these things, the more that also just becomes impossible. I mean, there's been conversations about, you know, victims of, of sexual violence or being too biased to cover sexual violence. Yeah. I mean, nope, not here for that. So <laughs> that is my reviewed TED talk on why I believe very strongly on honesty and, and accountability, but not uh, sort of fake neutrality. I will show up for the extended version of that TED talk anytime. <laughs> <laughs> and like you're saying that's pretty extended, but <laughs> like, I mean, that's I, brilliant. There's, there's no both sides to human rights. That's very straightforward and put it very clearly. 
Um, all right, so with that, we're going to move into a lightning round. <laughs> well, sometimes I say lightning round. I don't know that my questions are always lightning-esque. Like they don't always ask for a short answer, but I'll do my best. As you um, can tell, I have no lightning answers, but I do <laughs> try to shut up at, at some point. So yeah, I'll have to, I should change it from lightning round to just different questions. Um, okay. <laughs> The first one is though, just hopefully slightly more playful, but what's one thing that would surprise most people about you? Hmm. What's that? I don't, I feel like I'm such an open book. I like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, um. You I can pass. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like, I, I don't know. I feel like I used to have like deep, dark, secrets but these days I, I kind of like just tell everybody things like you know that I got arrested when I was 16. <laughs> Old white man. You already have all the exactly. All right so I've got the good stuff perfect. Um, if you could photograph anyone to tell their story uh, either I don't know if this is because again we're sort of getting into it I want to say like who's your subject because I don't like that language but is there like a, a person or story that you would really love to tell? Ooh, um, wow. I mean, there's so, there's so many. This is not an easy question, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I guess like, you know, one, one person that like, you know, I feel like just in terms of like excuses to meet people, like, yes. you know, two, <laughs> two artists or, you know, there's an author named P.S.A. Lehman, mm. who I don't know if you feel like I, I yes. would say kill for a 30 minute portrait session just as an excuse uh, to talk to him because I, I love everything he's ever written mm, um, yes. there's a musician that I have on heavy repeat named Viano and Viano that I like who's like an absolutely like incredible rapper and musician mm. from Puerto Rico that I can't stop listening to I would love to photograph her um you know in terms of story in terms of like I work a lot in Venezuela and it's my favorite place in the world. Mm -hmm. And I haven't been able to go back for a year and a half because of the pandemic. And now that I'm vaccinated, I cannot wait to go back there mm -hmm. and continue to work on my long-term project and continue to teach and see my friends. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like story-wise, that's something that I do. And, you know, I mean, dream-wise, yeah. if somebody wants to give me, like, unadulterated access to an American prison to actually photograph uh, and, like, hang out and really um, not have 12 CEOs breathing down my neck, yeah. that would be really cool, too. I mean, cool is the wrong word, but I would right. really, really, like, unfettered space <laughs> to actually look at what's going on. If we're talking about dreams, that would be right. um, something that I would really like to bring outside of those walls for people to see but yeah I feel like they make that impossible nearly even when I've gone in as a journalist like I can't bring my cell phone in I can't bring a recording device like it's <laughs> yeah. like pen paper and yourself and that's it yeah um that and was, everybody's just so you know I mean it was so crazy when I was you know going into the prisons to make some of these portraits you know the, you know the guards like seeing me me coming and sort of like half pretending to put their mask on you know and I was like yeah. oh, you're not worried <laughs> right like you, you've seen this right um screaming photographer coming okay light yeah <laughs> oh no <laughs> I can keep going on that um all right so let's say you're on a long flight to Venezuela uh you're heading back there what's 
playing on your headphones? Like what, what are you listening to? Piano on piano. <laughs> I love it. Uh, right now, I, I absolutely cannot stop listening to her. She's amazing. Um, what else? Um, I listen to, so I have a different plain music. I mean, I listen to a lot of reggaeton, a lot of salsa. Ooh. I listen to Black the rapper but spelled like with a six LA I'm not like into I don't know anything about pop culture at all not that that's <laughs> so black is one of my favorite rappers and he has like a really particularly like smooth sort mm. of hypnotic sound and I listen to him on airplanes particularly a lot I found him like very soothing and well next of- time I'm on the plane I'm gonna try that then yeah, yeah. <laughs> or regardless of the plane I would like to check it out anyway yeah totally um <laughs> just I've got okay two more for you this one's a playful one and then slightly more serious uh last tv show you binged and loved oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, but no one can see but you like turned in your chair to face away from me <laughs> <laughs> like, no because I don't yeah I've been like I like should not admit this, but I've been watching Elite, which is like this like Spanish soap oh, opera. I've it's, like, seen it. Yeah, gossip I haven't girl. seen it. But it's, it's like it's Gossip Girl in Spanish. Yeah. Um, I've seen it, Gossip like, Girl, so it's okay. We're giving away our secrets. I'll give away mine too. Yeah, <laughs> I really like bad TV sometimes. Like I just don't. I just don't want to think. I've also been, you know, before that I was watching The Handmaid's Tale, which is the opposite of like so very cerebral and also makes you want to die. Um, <laughs> those were my last two. That's a great recommendation for the show. Makes you want to die. It's, uh, it, it's art that makes you want to die. It's mm. brilliant. And I've also like read the Margaret Atwood books. Mm. And, um, but it's it's really excruciating and terrifying. Also. Oof, okay. Uh, all right. Like I said, the last one, slightly more serious. After doing this reporting on the incarceration of elders and movements for parole reform, are you hopeful? Or does something give you hope? that'll Ooh. change yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I feel I feel like you know I think the uprising of the past year and the way that young folks are talking and being heard and applying pressure does give me some hope it gives me more hope than I've ever had I spent most of my life feeling extremely apathetic about the grip that capitalism, neoliberalism, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, corporate powers, the patriarchy, white supremacy, (laughs) all of these things have had. (laughs) A lot of things, yeah. You know, like I felt, you know, I felt for most of my life that I see these things in action and I see very little capacity to really push back on them in a meaningful way. And I feel like, you know, we're living in a time when more and more sort of soft power and manipulative power is consolidated. So it becomes even harder to do a social justice movement to like, you know, like previous tools, like like protests for a long time. It seemed like these these things were almost immune to change. Mm -hmm. And this year really shook that up. And I'm seeing so many young leaders and young people really just not taking any shit and changing the narrative and changing the language and that gives me a lot of hope I feel like I do also feel pessimistic Mm. um not a lot of unfortunately the flip side of that is that a lot some of the activism we're seeing is is very performative and Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, what we really, really need is follow through and we need a lot of kindness and sort of revolution, revolutionary change on a human level that's not connected to dogma and posturing, you know, mm -hmm. and like that's, I think what, you know, I feel like the fusion of that, the, the raw revolutionary energy that we're seeing right now with like true personal like transformation and is, you know, maybe what could really make a difference in the future. I, mm -hmm. I feel like prison policy, it seems to me, and I say this as an expert photographer, so <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, but um, it seems like it's one of the last things to change, you know, it's like to, because it's just, it's so easy for society, even otherwise pretty like, quote unquote, woke people mm -hmm. to dismiss people in prison as people who deserve what they get or who don't deserve humane treatment or who don't deserve rehabilitation. And I think, you know, it's just this, this population is so often forgotten and it's so much easier for people to fight for change that they can see in their daily lives and for changes that they're confronted with than for these insidious, invisible work camps, you know, that are perpetuating modern slavery um anyways um all the things that you know and I'm sure most of your listeners mm -hmm. know so you know I think I think to change conditions and policies inside is maybe one of the hardest civil rights fights we have in this country mm -hmm. but I am heartened by how many more people seem to be paying attention and you know it seems to be becoming less and less sort of I don't know completely radical and out there to talk about you know mm -hmm. abolition or completely rethinking the way we do prison and, and how you know yeah. so um I don't know I don't know how truly hopeful <laughs> I am but I'm a lot more hopeful than I was before and I feel like I see more avenues to push you know mm -hmm. and that that gives me hope you know they did like they're the the younger generations coming up that are starting to get into office that are, you know, that are starting to, to pull more levers of power that that gives me some hope. And I, I appreciate your honesty. I like that you're not looking at this just as like it's rosy and everything's great. You're seeing the complications and the deep history of oppression. And uh, you talked about more people paying attention now. And I feel like you're part of the reason by by doing what you're doing, that more people are paying attention. And and also with this, uh, in fact, I should say the name of it again. So your piece in the Rolling Stone is Prisoners in the Pandemic, Elderly Locked Up and At Risk, the Life and Death of the Incarcerated During COVID. Uh, I feel like you are someone who listened deeply. You had to listen in order to, to do that project, right? Like, uh, so I'm grateful that you've listened and I'm grateful for you today as your vulnerability as a journalist. Um, so thank you for sharing with me. I just want to be your friend and uh, <laughs> I'm grateful that we got to share this space. Thank you so much for having me. And like, it's so cool to hang out and, and really thanks for creating just such an important space to be able to talk about these issues of incarceration, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's like, I think every little bit counts and just having these conversations is, is so powerful and important. And I learned a ton from, from some of your previous guests. So I'm really grateful to be acquainted with a lot of their work. Um, so yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been, it's been very cool to, to hang out on Zoom. Hopefully this will be our last Zoom of the century and maybe this technology will go away soon.
Great. Now that we're vaccinated, we could, like you said, you said something published in the New Yorker about partying now that people are vaccinated. So, (laughs) so also everyone should check that out as well. Thank you. Yeah. A really fun one. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in talk up their body. Another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes. Stay in your lane, I to stay on the go. I can to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me. Then I double up again, none of their knows. None of them cold, they just got lucky but never adapted. So I'm to the one if it's coming to blows. My enemies cutting it close. I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything